Blog Talk Radio. Are you tired of being sheep? Well, so is he. Get a friend, get informed, and get involved. It's We Are Not Cattle Radio. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to We Are Not Cattle Radio. I am your host, Jake Counts, coming to you live from Atlanta, Georgia. Once again, every Tuesday and Thursday night, we do have some show changes, and I'll be announcing those here in a bit. The um, The changes are actually moving the show from a two-hour show twice a week, that would be Tuesday and Thursday, to a one-hour show um, in order to really go hard-hitting and fast-paced and um, actually not to uh, burn myself out because I've found that um, doing a two-hour show, especially with no commercial breaks, gets a little daunting. And it's not to say that I'm not up to the challenge, but let's face it, I don't think anybody wants to hear my voice for two hours and every couple days. But then again, what do I know? So I'm going to move the show to a one-hour show Tuesdays and Thursdays, and then we're going to do a special weekend edition. So stay tuned for that. It will vary. It might be Friday night, some nights. It might be Saturday nights, and most likely you're probably looking at a Sunday mid-morning show, so somewhere around 11 o'clock-ish, so stay tuned for that. We'll be posting all the updates on my website, wearenotcattle.net, so tune in there, and I'll also shoot out um, all the new uh, scheduling shows on Twitter and Facebook to keep everybody abreast, and I do appreciate everybody's support. Thank you so much. And uh, thank you so much for making me a part of your life every Tuesday and Thursday night. I see the numbers, and... The numbers are great. I can't believe that um, that I have so many like-minded people. And what, what's amazing to me is that as the as the system kind of goes into cardiac arrest here in the United States, as the economic challenges will mount, and as all the <clears throat> the governmental quote-unquote shutdowns are going on, we are going to see a rise in the people that really have not listened to what we've said in the past and will start to pay attention now because it's going to start affecting their daily lives. And what I mean by that is the Obamacare plan, which was a plan to collectivize the nation, and it is not what the founders of this country wanted. It is not what anybody that has any semblance of self-worth would want. It is collectivization of a nationalized healthcare system. And then we get arguments from the left that say that, oh, well, we're the only modern nation that doesn't have nationalized healthcare. Right, but we're also one of the only nations that provides charity care, which is supposedly one-fifth of the care that is provided to anybody that goes into a hospital. That's why an illegal immigrant can go in and have a baby, and they can't turn the person away because they are guaranteed care under our regulations, and that is all going away. So to look at the American health system, even though we spend the most on health care of any nation in the world, and now we're just going to make that even more vast – really baffles the mind if you sit there and think about what the real challenges this nation faces. The challenges that America faces are very similar to what we faced in the Revolutionary War, where you have two different, I guess, mindsets, ideologies that are now um, kind of 
showing themselves in Washington D.C. You have the collectivized, um, the collectivized, I guess, um, aristocratic intellectual class that believes that you know command and control economies and command and control mechanisms, I guess, their own choosings, and they'll choose to do nothing. But what we see is that playing itself out after the government subsidies and the government you know, programs come in to try to inspire people to get jobs, and then they pay the people. I think that I remember reading that in North Carolina you were paid, depending on how much you earned, you were paid upwards of 500 and something dollars a week, tax-free, mind you. I mean, you can have taxes paid out of it, but you can also opt to not have any taxes drawn and then just pay them at a later date. So you could receive upwards of 500 and change per week for not working. Or you could go and be a quote-unquote productive member of society and go work at something like McDonald's or Starbucks and make you know $11 an hour. And after you pay your private bank that loans your government money at interest, after you pay your quote-unquote taxes, then you're left with 300 and something dollars in change. So you're almost incentivized not to be a productive member of society. And unfortunately, that is typically where most of these programs will lead. Most of them will lead to mismanagement, malfunding, um, robbery, theft, you name it, because once it gets out of your hands, this is the key thing to remember about liberty and prosperity and, and self-ownership. Once the money gets out of your hands, it is completely out of your control. And whether the bureaucrats take your money from you at gunpoint with quote-unquote taxation and then go and leverage that and use it in some slush fund or, or mismanage the fund a little bit or skim off the top or what have you, it is out of your control. So we're in a very intellectual battle now, but we're dealing with a bunch of people that that are highly intellectual, but they're intellectual under um, extreme circumstances. And what I mean is that the people that believe that the American system is flawed and the founding fathers are evil and all these other things and the free markets don't really regulate themselves and you have to have regulations and all of these good things, these are people that went to a state-run educational school, perhaps a private school, and then went to one of your quote-unquote Ivy League schools where you receive more brainwashing from, depending on which educational school that you go to, either the Rockefeller Foundation, the Carnegie Endowment, or the Vanderbilts. It doesn't really matter. It's all basically touting the same intellectual um, nonsense which would be that the more control and the more power that the government and other authority agents have, then the less the people need to worry. And that's the way that they will always portray it to the students because the students don't want to worry. The students just left their home. Let me give you an example. When you leave your home to go off to college, it's 18 years old, you're probably thinking to yourself, this is pretty terrifying yet exciting at the same time. You have your first taste of liberty. That is your very first taste of liberty, and what you decide to do with it is completely up to you. Your first taste of liberty comes when you leave the, the quote-unquote nest, if you go out of state, or even if you just move to, quote, on-campus housing. You are moving away from your perceived authority figures, which would be your parents, the people that have told you what right and wrong is, have kept you within the boundaries of the laws that are drawn and made up of you know politicians and special interests, that have created these laws that you're supposed to quote-unquote live in in order to be a quote-unquote upstanding citizen. 
So now you have your first taste of liberty, and what do you typically do with it? Well, most people enjoy their freedom, and they do nothing. There's a large majority of people that jump drop out of college within the first two years because they go there with, with no sense of self-worth, with no sense of gratification. They would like to just go there and party and have fun and, and intermingle and, and maybe attend some classes. And this is coming from somebody that did that for an entire year in college. So once again, speaking from experience, but also noticing there was a large portion of the um, – of the enrollment there that was doing the exact same thing that I was. So fast forward a little bit. So now that you've decided that you're going to actually try in school and you're going to try to better yourself, you take your classes in your quote-unquote major and then you have your ideas of what you would like to do. Now here is the challenge within the system. The system over the years has become almost to the point where degrees – you know, pieces of paper and other things are really worth what they are worth, and that is the piece of paper and the ink that is written on the paper. As you get older in life, you'll find out the job experience, how you interact with people, and how you carry yourself does hold a lot more weight than just a piece of paper. But it seems to me that the typically the people that feel the inferiority complex or feel the 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 need to show off or to to try to be the best, are the ones that didn't get the piece of paper and they feel somewhat inferior because the piece of paper is not there to validate the fact that they're worth something. So now we're moving into an entire societal shift which got shifted from self-ownership, self-worth, production, being a productive member of society and not in the sense that the governmental productive member of society, but a real productive member of society. If you go and get an underwater basket weaving degree, you're probably going to end up flipping burgers. That's just the way that it is. You can spend your four years or five years studying um, literature or whatever you would like to study, but unless you're going to be an intellectual scholar and go to college, grad school and even get your doctorate, that is probably not going to happen to you. So what happens now is you have these people with these exorbitant amount of debts that they've racked up going to school that is probably never going to pay off for them because the jobs that they're going to get are not going to be able to pay back the exorbitant loans that they've gotten because of the way that this this structure is set up. Now this has gone on to a, a little bit of a, a jag, but I'm going to come back to what this means in government in a moment. And then I'm going to open the phones up and take your phone calls in the last half hour. Okay, so now that we have gone through the system and we've uh, up, obtained our piece of paper degree and now that we've gone into the working world and found out that our piece of paper doesn't really hold the kind of clout that we thought it would once we were in the government institution telling us how much clout that that little piece of paper was going to have, there is an even bigger problem in society. The generation behind mine has lost all sense of reality in the fact that they don't understand that in order to get the things that you need, in order to get the things that you want, in order to get the things that you believe that you deserve, you have to start, unfortunately, at the bottom. Now, one of the hardest things for people that are graduating from college now, and I'm not talking to the people that are 
that have already figured the system out, that already know that the private Federal Reserve isn't of that. It is a private bank loaning your government money and interest, and you understand how economics work, and you understand how booms and bust cycles work. We are facing a real challenge in the fact that the people with these paper degrees walk out of college, and they believe that there is going to be somebody there to hand them a job. This is why we are in a lot of trouble. It is not from my generation. Granted, my generation did drop the ball a little bit. It is not from you know, a generation removed from mine. I'm 34 years old, so I guess the 40s, you know, the early 40s, you know, those people dropped the ball a little bit as well. But what happened was during the 70s and the early part of the 80s, once the stock market quote-unquote boom started happening and the Reaganomics kicked in where he lowered taxes and it gave people more revenue to spend and so on and so forth, you had this absorbent amount of middle-class wealth grow. And the, as we all know throughout history, the middle class was created by the aristocrats because so many people died off through the plague that they really didn't have enough peasants to work their farms. And so what they did was they created a middle class or a semi-surf class that they allowed to work their, their farms and make money and kind of move up the chain but never get to where the aristocrats are because that would just be ludicrous. How could anybody be up there with my royal bloodline? I mean, how dare they? So, through the 1980s, we have developed this entire large class of middle class wealth. And now what is happening, unfortunately, is there's a giant contraction of middle class wealth. And then the upper aristocratic class looks at it and says that, oh no, what are we going to do? The middle class is shrinking. Which, anyone that knows how these operations work when they start downgrading an economy, when they start really looking at the middle class, targeting the middle class, raising taxes, austerity measures, those types of things, they are meant to shrink the middle class more and more and have a wealth transfer from the middle and lower class to the upper echelon. Because the upper echelon are in all of the games in Washington, D.C., and they're in all of the pockets of the politicians. Now, I'm not telling you things that you don't know, but I want to bring it home for you this way. You have an entire society now that is completely divided. Now, I am one that always preaches unity. I preach love because that is the only thing that will save us. And I'm not talking about love in the hippie BS type of way. I'm talking about love in a true sense of loving your fellow humans, of loving everything that you exist in and making it better and promoting promoting goodness and promoting wholeness and promoting and I'm not talking about religion either you can use religion as a platform if you choose but if we don't lift the members of society up that are falling now you're going to make it exorbitantly harder down the road so what we have to get is we have to get to a point of self-realization as a nation that the way that things are running are not healthy, that the way that things are going are probably going to end up very badly. But there is one very important thing to remember, and that is the nearsightedness of the American public is so small, we're running into a basically a gigantic currency buzzsaw. And what do I mean by that? Well, you can't keep printing 
money. You can't keep buying bonds, bad bonds, in order to save the economy. It is unsustainable what the Federal Reserve System is doing. Granted, they're doing everything that Bernanke said he would do. And, and if you guys listened to the to the show last week, or I believe it might have been the week before, where I mentioned Bernanke's speech that he gave back in November, I believe it was in 2001, where he was going to be faced with deflation, what he would do. Now, if you read that very carefully, and what I did as I was you know, being the ginormous thought criminal that I was, I actually took that speech, printed off several copies of it, handed it out to friends, family members, and even people I worked with, highlighting exactly what was going to happen. Now, does this make me a precog that I can predict the future? No. I just understand what policy means. And policy never means American. When they say American policy or American interest, it is not talking about you, the individual. Unfortunately, it is talking about the special interests which run our nation. Now, there is some good that has come out of Washington over the last few years and the fact that the people actually did push back and enacted laws that make it illegal for any elected official to receive gifts or trips from lobbyists, which is good. And if they do get caught with specific felonies like Jesse Jackson Jr., they face extreme penalties, even losing their federal pension for life and being locked up. So that's a good thing. The American people pushed back, and now we got what we wanted. Unfortunately now, we're going to run into a distraction. And the distraction is Obamacare. And the reason it's a distraction is because anybody from the right side of the paradigm is going to talk about how bad it is and how nobody wants this and that you know that there's an overwhelming portion of the population that doesn't want um, socialized medicine, which is not true. But then you have the left side of the version or the left version of things, which of course is going to skew things in their favor as well. So my thought is that the American people lie somewhere in the middle. We know that the system is broken, but we don't know how to fix it. So what do we do? Well, Congress in their usual glory and and um, stick-to-itiveness passes a bill which probably doesn't solve either one of those problems, nor do they have a debate on how to change the law in order to make it more appeasable to both sides. Congress has now become the division of America as a microcosm. And what I mean by that is that when you have two groups that are completely on opposite ends of the spectrum with completely different ideologies, we are running into a very tough situation, and hence the government shutdown. So what does the government shutdown mean? What does it mean when the government, quote-unquote, shuts down? Well, I am going to read to you an article from BenSwan.com. Um, once again, if you haven't listened to my interview with Ben Swan, it is up on my YouTube channel, We Are Not Cattle TV. I would highly recommend that you check it out. I did stumble and bumble a little bit, but um, keep in mind, I have been admiring his work for quite some time, and it was, a, it was a real thrill for me to get to ask him a few questions and even get his take on um, homeschooling, which you know, comes to find out that he was a homeschooled person himself. So his, his view on government schooling is going to be a lot different than everybody else. And it's, um, I think it was the most, um, the most poignant part of the interview. 
and I would highly recommend that you guys go check it out and share it with other people that want to um, have an idea of of what real journalism is, and it is not um, it is not taking sides. It is really trying to get to the meat and potatoes of what's going on. That's why I watch CNN. That's why I watch Fox because typically, if it's a weighted poll, there is going to be the real number is going to lie somewhere in the middle. So. As people use media as a validation of their ideology currently, I think we're going to see a shift in more people that don't even want the ideological sympathies, that they just want the truth, and they want facts. Because when you get the truth and you get facts, then common sense is going to take over, and it's going to be pretty simple from there. But if you get white noise and you get rhetoric, then you're not going to be able to get to the truth of the matter, or the facts. So here is the article from BenSwan.com that he posted a few hours ago, and it says, what does a government quote-unquote shutdown actually shut down, and what you need to know? It says, Congress didn't approve a spending bill to fund the government as of midnight, which means as of right now, parts of the federal government are shut down. So what does that actually mean? The fiscal year the federal government runs from October 1st to September 30th. In order to keep things functioning as normal, Congress needs to pass a temporary spending bill before October 1st, and they did not. So what happens now? Despite the claims that the sky is falling due to a government shutdown, not much will change. The mail will continue to come. The military will continue to get paid. Social Security checks will still be sent out to veterans. Hospitals will remain open. Oh, and by the way... Um, unemployment checks will still go out as well. So it's it's political grandstanding, everybody. Shocker. So which part of the government remain open and which close? All comes down to the designation of essential and non-essential parts of the government. Of the roughly 3.3 million in government employees, that's just baffling. That's 1% of the population, everyone. That's so ridiculous. Most are considered quote-unquote essential. Therefore, the shutdown will not affect them long-term. The quote essential employees will be paid regardless of how long the government shutdown continues, but their checks may be delayed. At the end of the shutdown, those employees will receive retroactive pay. That is not the case, however, for the roughly 1.5 million active duty members who will not be paid no matter what. Or excuse me, that... That is not the case, however, for the roughly 1.5 million active duty members who will be paid no matter what. In addition, those will continue to be paid during the shutdown. The president and members of Congress, through members of their own respective staffs, could be furloughed because of they considered not essential. Congressional pay cannot be touched. Yeah, that's correct. Now, you have seen some people come out and as a political um, political move say that they do not want to receive pay, which uh, I would commend you guys. But, um, you know, that, then again, it's like kissing the um, the ugliest girl at the party. I mean, granted, it gets you somewhere, but it doesn't do anything for anyone else. Which parts of the government will remain open? Any employee or office that provide a, quote, national security function or, quote, foreign relations essential to national security are, are exempt. So, good. Well, at least the Department of Homeland Security and the TSA will get paid. That's nice. Therefore, the military is still paid under the and the U.S. embassies will remain open. 
Although U.S. Border Patrol will continue to operate along with air traffic control, federal prisons, federal law enforcement, operation, um, operation of the power grid, and the guarding of federal property. Why? Because any employee who conducts, quote, essential activities to protect life and property are exempt from the shutdown as well. Which parts of the government will close? About 800 federal workers will be furloughed and told to stay home and not affect in the shutdown will be greatly felt in the National Park Service and museums. Also, the servicing of passport applications will be delayed and, paying of, and the paying of out-of-small-business administration loans will halt. In addition, financial regulatories from the FTC will not be working and the Justice Department may suspend civil cases. At this time, the government shutdown took, or the last time the government shutdown took place was in 1996. At that time, under Bill Clinton, and the shutdown was for 21 days, and that was due to the Lewinsky thing. That was just me adding there. So it really is political grandstanding, everyone. Unfortunate as that may seem, we are looking at a bunch of smoke and mirrors once again. We are not really stopping the government. Nothing's really going to happen. So let's move on to bigger and better things. Let's talk about – actually, I have a clip here from from Rand Paul, and I would like to play that. Because, you know, love Rand Paul or hate him, he does have some glimmers of um, of what can be considered a, a presidential person. Now, is he what I would like to see? Absolutely not. Coming from a – a philosophical um, minarchist slash, I guess I would almost be considered an anarchist. I, I really can't agree with him on um, some of his policies and procedures, but then again, you know, who can you agree with? Because there's not going to be many people in government that would actually really want to take it back to the founding fathers, you know, save Ron Paul or a couple other people. So here is Rand Paul on the government shutdown. And then I would like to play a clip from Thomas Sowell talking about the man that Barack Obama is. And this goes back and ties into my um my earlier discussion or my earlier statements about um about college and the intellectual class. That, ladies and gentlemen, might be the doom of America. The doom of America will probably not come at the barrel of a gun. It will probably come from a bunch of ideological morons that believe that they have got the system figured out that a group of gentlemen that came from tyranny, absolute tyranny, and tried to put in safeguards to to halt tyranny and to even minimize the effects of a tyrannical government were just they're just old. I mean the ideas are just old. So Thanks for listening, everybody. Here is Rand Paul on the government shutdown. Welcome back to New Day. We are almost nine hours into a government shutdown after Congress was unable to reach an agreement to keep the government open and to fund the government. So how will lawmakers work their way out of this stalemate? And is this just a prequel to the upcoming fight, many would argue, the bigger fight over the debt ceiling? Senator Rand Paul, the Republican from Kentucky, he's joining us exclusively from Capitol Hill. Senator, it's great to see you. Thank you so much for your time this morning. Good morning. Good morning. From your perspective, where do things go from here this morning? Well, you know, I've had a couple of suggestions, and one suggestion is that when we disagree, historically we've gone to conference committee. You have Republicans in the House who want to alter or compromise on uh, Obamacare. You have Senate Democrats unwilling to. 
So if you have a disagreement, you come together with equal number of Republicans, equal number of Democrats, and you find a compromise. Not a bad idea. That's something that House Republicans, they moved to do after thing, things fell apart yesterday. We, I spoke with Senator um, Dick Durbin earlier in the show, and he said that Democrats, they would be open to going to conference. But first, they want to see House Republicans pass a stopgap funding measure. And as Harry Reid said, they don't want to go to conference with a gun held to their heads. Is that something you could support? Well, I think what we could do is we could pass a very short term, maybe not six weeks, but what about one week so we can negotiate over a week? I think a continuing bill to keep the government open while we negotiate is a good idea. I do agree that negotiating with the government closed probably to them appears like strong-arm tactics. So if we keep the government open, but I think it needs to be short-term enough that we are having an active negotiation, that we don't just say, oh, we're going to fund it for three months mm -hmm. or two months and come back. I think if we did it for a week or two, I think we could still continue to negotiate, have a conference committee, and really I think the American people do want us to work this out. That might be the first glimmer of hope I've heard all morning, so I appreciate it. You know, Democrats will also argue that they've been calling for going to, con you've been calling for going to conference for quite a while. Democrats say they've also been saying that for a while, to go to conference to hammer out when you, these budget issues. Do you think Speaker Boehner then made a mistake that he didn't make a move to go to conference earlier because this was the, this was their kind of their last straw last night? All right. Well, I think that uh, to go to conference it takes both sides agreeing to it. I don't think that the House has been against it. I think the interesting thing about this process is that we've offered a lot of different compromises. Our first position really wasn't so much a compromise. We don't want Obamacare. We think it's a bad idea and going to hurt people, so we offered to get rid of it completely. But that didn't pass, and so we offered a compromise to say, look, you've been delaying other parts of it. Why don't we delay the whole thing for a year? That, I think, is a compromise position. That was rejected. We then offered to delay only the individual mandate. Mm -hmm. The president has unilaterally done it with the employer mandate. That's another compromise that's been rejected. Now we're offering also a clean CR for a week or two, but then my understanding is that Senator Reid has rejected that out of hand as well. So really we're offering a series of moving compromises, trying to get a middle position, and we haven't gotten any, uh, anything back from the Democrats that they're willing to compromise. And how do you respond then to Democrats who say, but you're beginning from an irrational bargaining position. They don't think that the, these budget negotiations should have anything to do with the president's health care law. Just keep the government funded and fight, that out, fight well, it out separately. Right. I think that uh, HW disagree. If you and I disagree and I start out by calling you irrational, we're not going to get anywhere. I mean, obviously, when we disagree, we don't like the premise of the other person's position. Okay. But the thing is, is that funding is a function of Congress. So a law is passed, but how we fund it and how we modify that law over time, it doesn't mean from here till the end of time Obamacare is everything the president wanted it to be. The president's been modifying his own plan over the last uh, several months. Should Congress not be part of that? Some of us think it's illegal for the president to do it without our authority. So really, I think we should be part of the mix, and he shouldn't get 100% of Obamacare as he wants it without any input from uh, Republicans as well as the rest of the country. So, Senator, kind of how this all really, this end stage kind of kicked off was we, you stood with Senator Ted Cruz in that marathon protest on the Senate floor. When you look at that, where, where you stood there and where we are today, do you think that protest helped or hurt negotiations? I ask that because we are hearing more and more some, self, some moderate Republicans in the House saying things like the Ted Cruz wing of the party in terms of criticizing how things have been handled. 
You know, I think it was helpful to talk more about, we haven't had a big debate about Obamacare really since it passed in Congress. And so I think it was helpful to have the debate. I'll give you an example. I'm going on the exchanges. I'm going to have to buy my insurance on the Obamacare exchanges. In my state, there's only going to be two insurance companies. Used to be 30. Now there's going to be two. And one of my choices doesn't cover me out of state. So when I travel up here, and because of all this shutdown, I have a heart attack, I want my insurance to cover me here. But under Obamacare, it's not going to cover me in Washington. So, I mean, there's a lot of problems with this that if we don't work it out, we're just going to cause millions of people to go into these exchanges and they're not ready. Well, let's hope that never happens. No, no heart attacks no matter what happens in the job. I'll say that. Real quick, Senator, Democrats, uh, the president, they say that Republicans will be blamed. They're blaming Republicans for this government shutdown. The polls that we have, and I know that you, you love to debate methodology, but the polls that we have say that Republicans are going to face more of the blame now that the government is shut down. Does that concern you at all? I think what we ought to do is argue about right and wrong. So, for example, right now we're borrowing $30,000 every second. We have $17 trillion in debt. We're adding nearly a trillion dollars in debt every year. That's because we continue to spend what's called a continuing resolution without reforming it. So I don't think we can go on. And while I don't want to shut down government, and I would be for short-term solutions to keep it open, I think we do sometimes have to make a stand and say enough's enough. We're, we're spending our kids' future, and we can't keep doing it this way. Senator Rand Paul, always great to have your perspective. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you. Of course. So that is Rand Paul on, once again, the division in Washington. Now, is it a bunch of smokescreen and mirrors? Probably. There's probably a lot of that, but I, I do believe that there are some severe ideological differences when it comes to what's going on in Washington. So it's we got about 25 minutes left in the show. I've got a couple of news articles that I would like to cover. I'd also like to get into the Thomas Sowell, his perspective on Barack Obama. And for those of you that don't know, Thomas Sowell is an economist, um, Harvard graduate, um, good gosh, wrote the, wrote this incredible book called um, Basics of Economics. I, I, I would recommend that anybody read that book because it's not written at a scholarly level. It's written at a probably a 10th grade level, and he's he's pretty succinct when he talks about the difference between free market capitalism and a staged economy. And what we're going to get from the kleptocrats is that they're going to sell you that how great socialism is because now they have the methodology to control the timelines and the, the FIFO, LIFO, and all of those things, the, the the way that inventory is produced. There's not going to be any more just-in-time inventory or anything like that. And they're going to say that that's what all the smart grid is about, everyone. And I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but you are heading towards a world government that would be considered almost um, – I guess it's – I guess they consider it um, almost communism – but not so much communism as it's collectivism on the bottom and then exemptions at the top for the ruling class as as usual. It's just modern serfdom. If you want to understand modern serfdom, I would go and do um, a lot of perusing of Stefan Molyneux's site 
where he talks about the um, you know, a wage slave and what that is, because that'll that'll really get you up to speed, and then you can understand what um, what we're what we're really facing, and what we're really facing is really nasty because we have a portion of the population that that is just enamored with it is enamored with um, just entertainment and. And all kinds of stuff. So I'm going to open the phones up 602-753-1916. Give me a call. Give me your take on the whole government shutdown and everything. i got a caller on the line here. Let me pull him up. Caller, you are on the air. Welcome. Hey, it's Robert from Journalistic Revolution. What's up, man? What's happening, man? Oh, and by the way, Robert and I and Matthew and who else was on Trip Pugh? We solved all of the world's problems one night, so if you missed the podcast, I would go digging through the Journalistic Revolution archives, and um, yeah, and if we could just implement everything that we talked about on that show, Robert, we would be in great shape, wouldn't you think? <laughs> That's for sure. But, you know, I mean, it, it, it's obvious that the NSA doesn't really spy on Facebook because that's where all the world's problems are being solved. Absolutely. And it's amazing to see how many people got their degrees in underwater basket weaving but are now economists and are now, you know, understanding how socialism works. Isn't that fun? Now, would you I know that you've um you've delved in the conspiracy realm, but wouldn't you say that we're becoming a more and more socialized um corporatized nation as the years go by here in America and also piggybacking on top of that would you also say that that is a byproduct of the educational system here in America that teaches that the founding fathers and that that individual liberty need to be sacrificed for the greater good of the population in order to keep everybody safe? I would say that, yes, that um, due to uh, both the educational system and entertainment pop culture, uh, we have been dumbed down to a point where we – have accepted that we are going to have a fascist world government, but the question is, is are we going to have a liberal fascist government or a conservative fascist government? And that is the choice that is going to be delivered to us soon enough. Oh, the false paradigm. you got to love the false choice. I mean, you learn about that in Sales 101. You give the client the false choice. It's either, would you like to pay now, sir, or would you like to pay in 90 days? Either way, you're paying for this product, but I just want to find well, out it, what the terms are. Yeah, it's like asking yes questions. You know, you ask a, a person a question that no matter what they're going to say yes to. If you're drowning in the ocean, I throw you a life vest. Are you going to take it? Yes, good. Listen to me. You can trust me. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I got another caller on the line here. I think I know who it might be. Caller, you are on the air with Jake Counts and Robert, two bona fide, 100% card-carrying thought criminals. Hey, -o. Hey, this is, is this Jacob? Yep, you got it. Hey, what's happening, man? Um, Jacob is also uh -huh. a certified thought criminal, everyone, so... Um, Get ready. This this broadcast could get interesting. Guys, we got about 20 minutes left. I want to get your takes on the situation at hand here, and I also want to touch on some news. So if you could, Robert, since I, I had you on the line first, what do you make of all the political grandstanding about the government shutdown? What government shutdown? Um, That's probably a more pertinent question. That would be right on target. Go ahead and explain to the people what you mean by what government shutdown. Even though I read the Ben Swan thing earlier, um, go into a little bit or elaborate, if you will. 
Well, I mean, uh, if anybody has actually uh, looked into it before the shutdown happened, a simple uh, uh, a simple Google search would have shown that the government has shut down many a times, but even during these times of uh, government shutdown, over 80% of the non-essential workers still actually go to work. Nothing that is um, uh, pre-appropriated is actually cut. So Social Security, the mail system, Medicaid, all of those don't need Congress to actually you know, go forward. So really what this is, is it's them holding hostage some parts and monuments saying that, well, if we don't get what we want, we're, we're, we're not going to let you go on vacation. Mm-hmm. It, it, and, it is and really my whole take on it is it's scare tactics. It's it, it's it's posturing a dog and pony show to make us think that there isn't actual ideological differences between these two opponents. Now I did get into that a little bit earlier, and I want to elaborate on that on the back side because I do think that we do have two separate factions in government. That you know, as I talked to, and one of the things that was interesting talking to Ben Swan, he said that. Yes, both of the factions are ideologically different, but they both want the power, and I think that that's what we really need to to understand is that even though they're ideologically different and they'll infight with one another, they never want to dull down or tone down the power that Washington has, nor do they want to tone down the power of the executive branch. So, um, But I'll touch on that here in a minute. Jacob, what do you make of um, the hoopla and the fanfare that is the government shutdown? Yeah, I mean, it's exactly what was just uh, disseminated. It's uh, I, I concur wholeheartedly. It's it's just them, you know, utilizing scare tactics, uh, saying the sky's going to fall. Um, the market's probably going to react to it to a certain degree, and things will probably get hit a little bit, and that'll be enough to kind of keep that fear momentum rolling. But when you when you look at it, you know, <laughs> in percentages, and when you look at the the massive entity that the government is it's it's kind of laughable to call it a shutdown and it's, it's it's a joke and anybody who buys and I think I think everyone kind of recognizes that though as well you know I would hope but uh, mm-hmm. yeah the whole the whole end game here is is to use these scare tactics to to ensure that you know this this uh, unconstitutional legislation gets pushed through so that they can control more information and and uh, manipulate uh, more sectors that they just uh, were already manipulating from a larger scheme, I guess, from, from well, I guess the Fed kind of operates on its own uh, scale, but, you know, with the marriage, with, with their marriage with the Fed. But I don't I, that's that's how I'm seeing it. You can maybe elaborate further, Jake, and, and give your take. Well, it's just um, the the opposing views are what really drive me crazy because I do think that there are – ideological differences, but I think that they're in such small sectors of the House and the Senate that that's the reason that they always gravitate towards the Rand Paul, the the when Ron Paul was in, you know, when he was in office, they go to him and they go to people like Peter King because those are the people that are truly ideologically different, but, you know, they have to show the people that there is some kind of quote, progress, and I hate that term when it comes to what goes on in government because the way that the system was set up, there wasn't supposed to be this, quote, progress all the time. We weren't supposed to have more and more edicts and more and more regulations. It was supposed to create a stalemate, and now what we've created is an is basically a one-party system that all they do is just give the government more and more power because eventually – we're going to have control 
And that's, I believe, what the defining ideology is in Washington. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but um, here is one I would like to transfer into briefly. And I didn't mean to transfer, but you're going to see how how um, funny that little Freudian slip was here in a minute. I want to get into the international politics behind what's going on in Greece and in Spain. Now, you guys are pretty well read. You guys understand. Um, you guys understand international policy and also um, international, I guess, um, conquering through fraud like the IMF and the World Bank do. But I want to read you a little bit of an excerpt from The Guardian that came out on Wednesday um, of last week. And it was kind of glanced over, but this is what I want people to understand about here in America. Because when, when cuts start coming down the pipe, once everything's nationalized, like I said on the last podcast, once it's under governmental control, it has the ability to be cut. Whereas if you leave it in the free market, the free market will pretty much determine what what needs to go where, which com- which companies die off, which companies survive. And they kind of um, – I don't remember, Robert, if it was you telling me this or, or if it might have been somebody – it might have been Josh talking about – Competing currencies in a free market society will always weed out the the less stable currency. Is that – I mean you guys understand this stuff just as much as I do. Is that pretty much succinct with what you guys have read through Hayek and and um, and I guess Ron Paul talks about it a little bit as well. But he more leans towards the government and, and gold standards I guess. What would you guys say? Well, yeah, say? he thinks that the uh, with Ron Paul, he thinks that the gold standard is the ultimate stability for currency. Um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I I agree to a certain point. Like, I think that the gold standard um, is a good place to start. But I think as long as we're allowing things like Bitcoin and silver and other precious metals and barter and trade, that mm-hmm. it, the, the market will fluctuate. But sometimes people will use gold. Sometimes people will use Bitcoin. Sometimes people will use barter and trade, and there will always be a mix of it all. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that uh, the philosophy is correct that any mm-hmm. non-stable currency would not be able to last long in a structure like that. Now, Jake, uh, you're a finance guy. Is that um, pretty much in line with what you what you've read? I yeah, I completely agree. Again, uh, not as high on on gold. Uh, but I definitely think a uh, gold standard, but it's, it's, uh, it's definitely an improvement. You know, any sort of deflationary currency is an improvement upon what we have now. And mm-hmm. obviously, you know, the, you can apply that sort of idea and that concept to just the market in general, uh, mm-hmm. and, and how they can, you know, that should, that's how a free market should work, uh, in general. However, you know, that's not, what well, we have, we have, you know. No, we got a casino. We got a casino. Economy. Yeah, right. we got a casino economy currently. So let me read into this really quick, and then I'll get your you guys' take because we are running up against it. Um, I don't know if you guys know this, but um, I'm actually moving the show to one hour on Tuesdays and Thursdays, and then I'm going to do a weekend show, and I think the weekend show will either run an hour or possibly even two. But just to let everybody know, the weekend show is going to be much more laid back. It's not going to be hard-hitting, not going to be analysis like this. It's going to be more of a free form. It's probably going to be when I can get a couple of you know, people like Robert and, and Jake and maybe Josh and Matthew and a couple other guys that I know. And we'll just get on and talk about what happened during the week, and we're going to cover the waterfront, whether it's pop culture or go all the way down to you know what's happening over in Europe. So tune in for that. And, Straight up party uh, time. 
Absolutely, man. You got to cut loose, otherwise I'm going to go absolutely yep. crazy just doing stupid mm-hmm. research. I'm reading Patrick Henry's um, biography right now. That is absolutely incredible. I would highly recommend it to everybody. I forgot how anti-government that guy was, and man, was he a beautiful person, and he really did get it. He really did get that as soon as you start not putting restraints on the federal government, you are opening up a big can of worms because people will always find a way to maneuver in there. So anyway, 12 minutes to go, guys, so here we go. Austerity measures push Greek universities to the point of collapse, a.k.a. anything that's going to happen over there, everybody pay attention because it will come here, and unfortunately, this is one of the things that we do need to be aware of. The University of Athens faces the most serious crisis in history and suspends operations because of cuts, while others follow suit. The internationally mandated austerity measures have pushed universities in Greece to the point of collapse, and many debt-stricken countries Preeminently higher education institutions are being forced to suspend operations. After the university in Athens that could be no longer functioning because of layoffs demanded by the European Union, those cocksuckers, excuse my language everybody, but God, I hate those guys. The International Monetary Fund, International Monetary Fund, you can put them right up there with the CS, they get a CS label as well. Maybe I should just start shortening my profanity to just... um, to just letters, and then people can kind of extrapolate from there. I don't like to cuss on air. I think it's, I think it's, um, it shows, um, whatever. Screw it. Did you know that it's and actually uh, there, just there is call scientific Judy data? So what? Did, did you know there's actual, yeah? Did you know Judy there's actual is. scientific data that shows that people who uh, cuss more often are actually more honest people? I did see that, yeah, and that. you know yeah. what? I that that whole um, that whole article can go fuck itself. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> the European, the European Central Bank universities in Tuxley, Perry, and Leona and Crete have followed suit. All they they say the cuts to the administration staff, including guards and ar- archivists, they mostly made it possible impossible to keep the doors open. Greece is under pressure to streamline its body. Bloated public sector by relocating 25,000 civilian servants into a strategic reserve and a mobility scheme to reduce pay by the end of the year. Those who cannot find jobs in government departments will be coddled. In in a letter to the Prime Minister, the president of the Federation of the University of Teachers wrote, With great angst, we have discerned that the government's decision to place specialists and the valued administration staff into the mobility scheme of our universities are at risk of a collapse. Even if we accept what the, that we have a surplus of personnel, we cannot, from one day to the next, operate with less than 40% staff. Until the government now possesses, or excuse me, until now, government posts have been guarded by the Greek constitution, but almost four years into its worst financial crisis in modern times, engineered by design, by the way. Good job, bankers. Athens, Troika, and creditors have ridden um, rough so through uh, over the taboo, saying that deficient or deficit redu- reducing targets demand that employees be dismissed. Among the 20, 12,500 civil servants already identified, for the transfer into the scheme of the administration staff, universities based on, oh, excuse me, working in libraries, laboratories, clinics, and professional offices. Announcing suspension of operations on Tuesday, the reactor, 
or the rector of the University of Athens, the country's oldest higher education institution, said it was impossible for the university to operate without 498 employees who have been stripped of their ranks. And the article is almost done, so bear with me, everyone. As a result, it would never be able to register students already gathered from the start of the new academic year, conduct postgraduate courses, and release exam scores. It is very likely that we will lose the next six months, but the bigger issue is if we don't lose the university altogether. Barely days after the start of the first round of negotiations with creditors, IA, or a.k.a. thieves, the closures have once again put Sahara's Friends Coalition on defense. The massive selling of the newspaper described its closures as a huge challenge, not only for the students, but their families at the time of intense political, economic, and social upheaval. Universities, most like public bodies, like most public bodies, have become the breeding ground for the public sector proficiency used widely by politicians as a source of patronage to return for votes. Telling only 295 of the 7,600 administrative staff employees in treacherous education since 1994 have been appointed on the basis of meritocratic process, I guess the process of merit, according to the uh, Taze. In one historical case, a lifeguard was paid for years by Athens University of Economics and Business despite the pool in the housing complex to which he had been appointed had been closed. All right, I'm not going to read the rest of the article, but what do you guys make of this? I mean, obviously, the bankers did an incredible job of creating the euro, flooding the market with it, signing countries on to bad debt that isn't even really theirs. It is basically manufactured derivatives debt. And then telling these countries that they're not going to be able to have universities anymore, all because of a bunch of kleptocratic assholes who want to make their payments on their G5 jets. What do you guys think? I'll go to Jacob first. Go ahead, man. Well, I don't even know what to make of all that. I mean... Well, I butchered the shit out of reading the article, so... <laughs> I guess... Yeah, I guess there's a lot did of... Did you go to Athens University? Can... I, I, she, I, it sounds like I did. It sounds like I was the guy watching the damn <laughs> pool that wasn't open. Oh, man. There's a lot of different ways you can take that. Yeah, you could just focus on, uh, you know, how central, centralized banking is just a failed... Well, let's talk about let's talk about that. Let's talk about how they've been engineered into this um, this triage situation where you have a bunch of different nation states vying for their vitality, so to speak. Let's start there. Go ahead. Mm-hmm. And and we can take more risks with with uh, more volatile nations because there's more stable nations. And I mean, you can even you know tie that into. You know the whole healthcare fiasco that's going on right now, and I'm sure you guys, you guys already talked about that earlier in the show. I'm assuming you touched mm-hmm. on that for a long way, but you can see a correlation there, where as a as a larger collective, we can take on more risk in in these areas and just, you know, print and push uh, fiat currencies and in this area and just let them let them go as much as they want in avenues maybe that they aren't efficient. Well, I mean, government being efficient in establishing any sort of business, I mean, you find me an instance 
where where they've uh, where they've done so successfully and you know I'd be happy to hear about it I suppose but <laughs> yeah I mean it, it's it's just not it's it's never it never works out as as well and we're back tying right back into the you know a free market can certainly if given the a true opportunity uh you know yield yield excellent results and I think that's why a lot of people come to the states you know for the most for their education even in these you know socialized free education i mean other u k can compete as far as in in universities and and quality of of educational service but uh mm-hmm. there's really not too many uh too many countries that can compete with the quality and and even at that then there's the whole argument of whether you know that that whole education is really that necessary or if you're more of a unschooler which is tends to be more popular in our movements but mm-hmm. i'll leave it at that well, that was interesting because that kind of tied everything into what I talked about at the very beginning. So that was very, very interesting and very succinct. Robert, what do you what do you make of of the of the global financial meltdown, especially starting with the with the euro as we see as we see um, Greece fading and as we see Spain fading rapidly as well. What what do you make of all of that and and the correlation to the universities and and what that can actually mean to the public? Well, uh, as far as the meltdown, I mean, that's going to happen. So I think the people of Spain and Greece should just go ahead and uh, come to accept that. Now, as for the universities, and, and we need to accept that too because that will be happening to us soon enough as well. I was about to say that I was about to say that we're we're not you know we're not escaping that either. Unfortunately, yeah. we need to come to grips all with of, everyone across the world will feel this eventually. But mm. uh, as far as education goes, I don't see why Athens just doesn't take uh, a play from its ancient books. And why don't these professors and these people who want to teach students offer uh, private classes at a freaking park somewhere where they just all sit around and talk about it while the teacher sits in the middle? These people can pay these professors for profoundly less money. These professors will make profoundly more money than they were making, um, mm. which is right now nothing. And um, and it'll set the standard for voluntary interaction globally. But well, then how will they push yeah. their agendas? How will they control the dialogue <laughs> and, and tell people what they need to write their papers about? You see, that's never going to work, man. There's no way that they can continue their system uh, with that with that kind of educational uh you know, dialogue going on. I think I think Jacob's right. The Rockefeller Foundation and the Carnegie Endowment would have a really big problem with that. Especially the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation would have a really big problem with that too. Yeah. But uh, you you make a you make a very interesting point, Robert. And, and you know, it's probably one that we should close with here on the show. And man, I'm starting to think that an hour is just not going to cut it. <laughs> As I make this change. As I make this change to give myself some more time to do other things topics, in my life. I don't know how many topics you do. Do like two topics so you can do an hour. That's easy. Yeah, I mean, I can't even get through two, man. I tried the government <laughs> shutdown. I tried austerity measures. Now I want to go on to the whole platform of how this thing got in, induced and, in, in, oh, just so sick. But anyway, that was a well, really great point. we always post. have our show tomorrow night, man. Absolutely. So, you know, as we're going out here, um, Robert, why don't you plug your stuff? And, and I'm on there on occasion, so plug your stuff really quick, and then we we might do um, five minutes of overtime if you guys want to do it. 
All right. Well, you can catch us out at journalisticrevolution.com. We also have a YouTube channel of the same name. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook by the same name. Uh, Journalistic Revolution is now doing a weekly news update, which is kind of comical, fast paced. They are badass, everybody. Badass. And um, so we will be doing that weekly. And then uh, um, we also have documentaries coming from our Josh Wiley, who should be uh, producing those here soon. And uh, yeah, and you can always listen to us on Liberty Movement Radio on Wednesdays, Fridays, and Sundays from 11 to 1. There it is, everybody. So I'm Jake Counts from WeAreNotCattle.net. Follow me on Twitter, WeAreNotCattle1. And um, check me out on Facebook, WeAreNotCattle. Same kind of deal. But um, that's it, everybody. Get a friend, get informed, and get involved. I'll be sure to cut the tape up a little bit because we did run a little over. But we are in extra time, guys. Anything that you guys would like to say, I can always edit it into the show, but it will always be archived. So I I know that we kind of ran through this. And I did want to get into a bunch of other things. But, um, I mean, let's talk about the global economic catastrophe and why it's coming to America. Um, Jake, you have a a lot of, um, I guess, being in the finance world, you have a different perspective than Robert and I do when it comes to global financial situations and, and what's risky and what isn't risky. Not to tell people how to invest, but where is the smart money going? Where do you see people putting their money to uh, to kind of either stave off inflation or to prepare for the upcoming possible um, global catastrophe that that might that might come through for for the bankers. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's that's a, that's a lot to ask. I mean, it, it, it depends on what your outlook is. I guess uh, your outlook. I mean, no. Let's right take now, the, let's you, take the stand. Let's able... take the stand here. Just let me preface this. I'm sorry, I should have prefaced it. Sure. I'm going to take the stand that as much as I think that the fiat money system will fail, I -hmm. think that it can go on a lot longer than people are giving it credit for. I hear people saying that the beginning of next year, that's it. But I've also heard that that it was like it's a year out, it's six months out, you know, October's the big push or April's the big push. So I think that the fiat money system can go, you know, as fiat money systems go, as anybody knows that studied economics – Fiat money will continue to be fine as long as the people have confidence in the in the currency. So let's take, right. for example, that the currency wars and the trade wars and all those things aren't going to happen for another, let's say, five years. What would you say then? I think we lost. Well, it. I mean, what? Is that? Oh, no, we didn't. Okay, good. No, I, yeah, I just had to think there for a second because you, you kind of put me in a different uh, shoe than what I thought you were going to put me in there. Um, yeah, so the next five years, uh, I mean, uh, this is all just speculative, and I think you're, I think you're right on when you're saying that you know I don't, I don't think the collapse of the the dollar is going to be happening as soon as, is, and hyperinflation is going to take uh, place as soon as a lot of uh, extreme. Uh, libertarians like maybe Peter Schiff or different economists like that might say, I think that, you know, you need to sort of have a better understanding of how credit, you know, credit, credit, uh, based economies work, uh, and not have such, like I say, a lot of times not have such a nationalistic or American centralized, uh, overview of the world. But I mean, yeah, if you're, if you're, if you truly think that in five years, all currencies will, you know, will even, 
evaporate or, or no longer be in use, then yeah, these I think the cryptocurrency is really where people are going to be uh, moving to, and I, and I think regardless, I think that's like the movement, a movement that just won't, you know, maybe it's not Bitcoin, maybe it's a different uh, cryptocurrency, but that's where we're, where we're going to be at, uh, just because it is a more effective currency as a, as a whole. And I think most uh, world currencies are, are doing rather well when you compare them to, to gold other than the U.S. dollar and, and the yen, which are maybe underperforming. I think those mm-hmm. are the only two that I'm aware of that are underperforming. Um, but I think, yeah, just being, you know, if, you, if you're going to invest in more alternative investments and more actively managed investments than uh, buy and hold strategies that people tend to have employed in the past, that's um, probably a better move because if you're using those kind of archaic buy and hold strategies, you're going to end up getting hit by these bubbles bursting and, you know, it's it's really gonna it's gonna just put a huge dent in what you've accumulated uh, over the last you know whatever x number of years you've been trying mm-hmm. to invest. So, well, I, I think you make very good points, and I like to I like to have an optimistic point of view, and then you have you have other people that have the doomsday scenarios, and I understand you know it's always it's always I guess. Uh, healthy to to think about a worst case scenario, but I, I I do have this really weird thing that I have, and it's called faith in humanity. Now I have faith, and there are there's a portion of humanity that probably wouldn't even be considered human. The the psychopaths and the sociopaths, I would not consider them human because they don't feel empathy, which I think is one of the one of the most fulfilling. Um, I guess feelings or emotions that you could ever have as a human being, but um, you know, I, I don't think that I don't think that humanity will go down in flames because we don't have a median of exchange, you know, a set median of exchange. <laughs> now that's just no. no, that's because you you see you see people, and I'm not going to say any names, but I'm thinking we all we all can relate to who some of these people are. That do sensationalize an economic collapse, that do sensationalize all these things, and and it's not like you're going to wake up tomorrow and your bank account is going to be gone, people. You're going to start seeing the hyperinflation very, very soon, and how you react to that scenario is going to determine how successful you'll be in the new economy that develops. I don't think that – I mean even though I know that it's a strategic plan to implode Europe and to – and to implode the United States to try to consolidate everybody and get everybody trading on a a one world system. Of course, that would be great in retrospect. But you know, as we dial it back, we see that the more competing currencies that you have, the more of a marketplace it creates, and the more the marketplace can weed out the bad currencies, like like when um, the um, the peso was really weak, and when the Deutschmark was really weak back in the eighties. So I, I think that my faith in humanity overwhelmingly takes precedence over the doomsday scenarios of having to having to sit in your basement and get ready for the FEMA trucks. But I, I don't know. Call me an eternal optimist. Call me a lover of humanity. Call me what you will, but that's just my take. And um, I think that's going to do it for the show, Jake. Thank you so much for popping on, man. I always love you, um, you know, chiming in on the show 
giving us your thoughts because um, you do add a lot to the banter here. So thank you so much for joining us tonight. And um, thank you guys for listening. Be sure to share the podcast with people you know, people you like. Let's get the conversation started about where we should be going. Don't listen to the mainstream media and you know infight with one another about political bullcrap because at the end of the day, it's not going to get us anywhere. And ideological differences are going to have to be hammered out. And the only way that we're going to be able to hammer those out is through conversations, not by arguing with one another. So thanks for listening, everybody. Get a friend, get informed, and get involved, and we will see you on the backside. Take care, everybody. Oh, you